Hey, what's up, guys? It's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor, back again with another sermon review. Today, we're going to be looking at a sermon from Matt Fries. Now, full transparency, Matt Fries is actually one of the Patreons that supports this page and makes these videos and things that we do possible. And also, for another note of transparency, I've already reviewed one of Matt's sermons uh, personally through sort of the, one of the Patreon tiers that I have. So I'm pretty confident that this one's going to be good because the one me and him sat down and went through was excellent and I wanted to put one into the rotation that I had some pretty good confidence in. If you're new to the sermon reviews, what we do each week is sit down and go through a sermon as far as we can within an hour and we look at three specific things. One, do they read scripture? Two, do they read that scripture well? Do they bring out the context, the culture, uh, what's their hermeneutic in doing so? And three, uh, do they mention Jesus? Now, I know that seems like kind of a low bar, but the sermon review we did last week, or the sermon we did a review on last week, didn't meet any of those criteria. And I think it's important that that is our kind of our baseline criteria of what we're looking for when we look at sermons. So today we're going to be looking at Matt, another one of Matt's sermons that he sent me, and he preached this at home church on January 2nd of this year. Now, if you don't want to watch this entire sermon review with my commentary, that link for that sermon will be in the description below. Go ahead and check it out. Now, with that being said, we're going to get right into this sermon uh, and kind of go through it as much as we can. It's called Encountering God uh, by Matt Fries, preached January 2nd, 2022. And I, I trust, I don't know if I'm basing all of what I know of with one of the sermons we did review uh, from his Patreon uh, meeting, then I have a feeling that this one will be pretty good. We're going to start this at minute mark 34 minutes, 52 seconds. Let's get into it. Good morning. So we're going to be talking today, uh, the sermon is entitled Encountering God. And it came to me that I hear something a lot, I'm sure most of you have heard it as well, where you hear something that says, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Have we heard this? Nods? Excellent. Um, on the surface, or on the spirit of that, I think it's a great um, understanding, because what it says is that we don't get salvation through works. We don't have a certain set of rites and rituals that we do. We have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I do see one issue with it, which is most of the time that I hear it, it is being said by somebody who is actually saying, I don't have to change anything because I have a relationship. I don't need to do anything to further my walk with God because I have a relationship. And I'm here to tell you that relationships change people. So anybody who's married, raise your hand, please. Keep your hand up if you have changed since the day you met your spouse. <laughs> yeah. Amanda and I have been married for a couple of years. And if I were to tell you I am the exact same person that she met, you guys would think you are stubborn and we feel sorry for her. All sorts of little things. It did not take long into our marriage before I found out that I loaded the dishwasher wrong. <laughs> right? We all have these stories. I do it different now because my relationship has changed me. And it doesn't matter if it's not a spouse. Your friendships change you. 
uh, motivational speakers will say that the five people that you surround yourself with most determine who you become. And these are imperfect relationships with very imperfect people that are changing us. So I want to start off. All sermons have an intro, right? Some sort of hook, some sort of something to get you into it. Now, again, as we've said in previous sermon reviews, sometimes that is reading scripture. Sometimes that's uh, sort of introing it with uh, more of a direct point like Matt did here, or sometimes it's a story. Now, Matt kind of did a a combination of two and three where he intros with... um, he doesn't say what the text is, though we have the text on the screen, so we kind of looked it up. I've got it prepped. Isaiah, right, is where we're going. So he intros, though, with this common phrase that a lot of people know, right? It's not a religious relationship. Something that is common enough that a lot of people have heard it, and it sort of sparks something in their head, probably. It's like, oh, yes, I've definitely heard that here, there, or somewhere else. The idea being that he's now got them in a place where we're thinking about that. We're, we're, we're thinking, okay, yeah, we've definitely heard that before. We may have even ourselves used that before. And be, without sticking too much on that point, he seems to move very quickly on to, here's a story uh, or a personal sort of connection to where, like, even acknowledging that, okay, well, that sounds good on the surface. Here's the issue with that. Let me show you how that's really the issue with that. So it sounds good. That's not, not a religion. It's a relationship. But truth is that, you know, most people that say that, or a lot of people that say that, say that because they don't want to change, but in reality, relationships change you. So the flow here is really good in regards to stating like this big point that everybody's heard, drawing it very close and personal, to then, I'm going to guess, segue into his scripture. Let's see how he does that. And so the question that I'm going to ask today is, if you have a relationship with the perfect God, How will that change you? So we're going to be talking through Isaiah today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6, and it will be verses 1 through 8. And of you who have seen my sermons before, you now know that I'm going to talk about Isaiah before we get into the text. Isaiah is a a prophet. He was a prophet. He's dead now. Uh, Yeah, for a while. Um, He was a prophet to Judah. Um, There are two kingdoms. Israel splits into two somewhere in 1 Kings. Uh, We get the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah is a prophet to Judah. This book, which is a really long one in your Bible, is a collection of his prophecies that take place from the early 700s to the late to mid 600s BC. I don't know how much uh, Jewish history you know for the early 700s to to mid 600s, but it was a rough time. In that time, the kingdom of Assyria came into northern Israel, the first kingdom, and they took it over. They took everybody away into captivity. And if you want a long rabbit hole of research, look up the lost tribes of Israel because they never returned fully. Then this kingdom of Assyria went into Judah, the smaller of the kingdoms, and raged a devastating war. They surrounded Jerusalem. They laid siege to it. But that turned the people of Jerusalem to God 
and through his miraculous intervention, Assyria was turned away. All of this is happening in the time that Isaiah is starting his prophetic uh, mission. Now, Isaiah predicts so much, too, that Babylon will come. What I want you to notice, because I know this is probably going to go on for a minute, so I just want to break in. The background here is incredibly important. I think oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, now this happens in the New Testament as well, but especially in the Old Testament, we have um, sort of scriptures we dive into that maybe are familiar. Now, what he's going to read in Isaiah 6, I think, is familiar to most people that have been in church for a pretty long time, especially if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this before. So it can become over familiar, familiar to us in the sense that we kind of like, we're like, oh, we know it. What Matt is doing here, I think, is great in, re in the sense of he's really setting up this background context for us. So if we're not familiar with it, we are getting a whole dose of information. This is where taking notes is incredibly helpful because now you sort of have this sense of what time period, like what is happening around the time that Isaiah is prophesying, prophesying what, what's happening around the time that he's living, like what, what is he seeing with his eyeballs in front of him as he's doing this. I think that's incredibly helpful, not only for us to understand the history of different parts of the Old Testament and how things you know were happening during the time of the writing, but also just so we understand, like, this is what he's seeing. This is what he's going through. This is the, the history uh, that's behind this book. And it gives us some great context. Now, even for some of people probably in Matt's congregation that have that know some Old Testament history, that have read through the Old Testament a number of times themselves, they're aware of a lot of what's happening and what he's saying. There's enough information here that even for them, there's probably some new sort of tidbits or some things that maybe they had forgotten that they're remembering. So this is helpful for everyone here, uh, whether they've read through the Old Testament a ton or maybe they've never read through it before. Matt's giving them this great wealth of information to kind of set this up and go, oh, wow, okay, this is what's happening right here. Because just from what I've experienced myself, from talking to other people that have also grown up in church, we're pretty ignorant of the Old Testament in regards to the historical context that a lot of this was set up in. It's just not something that has been taught well as it used to be taught uh, in generations uh, previously. So this is really great. In fact, I'd urge you, like, if you don't have notes out, like, get a piece of paper or a separate piece of paper or just go watch this without my commentary and kind of just take the notes down because this is really helpful. And I think as pastors, we don't want to make our sermons incredible, like a history lesson, but there can be, and I think Matt's going to do this well, at least in the previous sermon that we reviewed together. Uh, he did it really well. I think he'll do it well here as well, but um, like gives us a, a lot of information condensed down into a short amount of time. Um, so anyway, that being said, let's keep going to see kind of how he transitions this in and take people away, which they do a hundred years after he dies. The book of Isaiah is divided into two sections, though, and this is the key for us today. The first 40 chapters are all judgment. This is what Israel has done wrong, where Judah has done wrong. This is how we have betrayed God, and this is what God will do in judgment of that. And then we get this turning point. If you're familiar with the New Testament of Paul's writings, you will see a lot of but God. 
and then we get redemption. The second part of his book is about the coming Messiah, about the day of the Lord when everything that has been wrong becomes righted. So when we go through here, I want you to think through there. We have a, a first section of judgment followed now by a second section of redemption. We'll be reading Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and this is when Isaiah gets called by God for his prophetic mission. Verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Very rarely in the Bible do we get descriptions of people who really encounter the glory of God. But when we do, it's never casual. We never see somebody who sees God in his glory and walks away thinking, meh. We have Moses who was said to speak face to face with him and when he wanted to see God, God hid him in the cleft of a rock and said, you can only see my back. And that forever changed Moses. We get to the book of Job, and Job has gone through the worst season of his life that any of us could probably imagine. His family has been killed, his crops are all dead, he has leprosy, he is in a bad spot. And him arguing with his friends he says, if I could have a meeting with God, I would tell him that what he has done is unfair. So real quick, I, I, hopefully you saw what he did there. So he, he read the scripture. So he used the background, went right into scripture, read through those verses. And instead of, and this is one of the things I think, um, hopefully, if you, if you speak or preach, you get some use out of these, these videos. Um, for this purpose, if nothing else, I, I know I do, is that my inclination would be to go right into breaking down the text after reading it. So, I mean, that's my first kind of reaction. 
Matt here does something different, and I think it's helpful in regards to, he doesn't go right into it. He acknowledges that like this is a rare text. Like we don't have a bunch of events within scripture in which we can go, oh, these people encountered God in this powerful way. Now, we do have a few, and that's what he gets into, right? He gets into Moses, he gets into Job. I don't know if he's going to use any other examples, but he's pulling those out saying, yeah, this is a rare event that changes these people. Again, pulling back to what he, he initially started with. All of this is threaded together very carefully with a purpose. A relationship changes you. A relationship with God is going to change you. Matt here says, hey, here's Isaiah. Also, a few other examples of that before we get fully into Isaiah. And it's, it's, it's a, a conscious thread running through the whole sermon of this point that if you know God, you will be changed. And it's set up in such a flow and in such a rhythm that it's it, it doesn't feel rushed through, but we've covered a ton in a very small amount of time. Also, just as a side note, and I've already mentioned this to Matt before when we've talked, but pacing is very important. And Matt's pace here, I think, is very helpful. Sometimes you have pastors that are kind of monotone, right? They'll just kind of talk like this as they go through the sermon. And then you'll have other people that are just jumping all over the place and they're just screaming and whispering and you just, you don't, you don't, it's an emotional roller coaster. So it feels like sometimes you have a choice between an emotional roller coaster or someone that's almost dead, right? And that's, that's like, that's all you get. Now, again, some of that clearly is personality, but some of it uh, isn't. Some of it is trying to like really like, too much engage the audience and some of it doesn't realize that you actually have to engage the audience matt here has this nice pull between both there's this real connection with the people he's speaking with but he's not going so fast and there's not so much energy that you get distracted and i think that's one of the things that as uh if you're a pastor or a youth pastor speaking to people you have to realize like there is this tone there is this sort of rhythm you have to get into now again if you're a congregant and just sitting down listening to a sermon it doesn't so much affect you in regards to thinking through that so much, but I think that if you kind of pay attention a little bit more, hopefully it doesn't distract you from the sermon itself, but you will see that there are there are many tones and paces that people preach. And a lot of the time, I don't think we really think about this, but that does affect how we, how we listen and take in the information as far as the speed or if we're falling asleep or if we just don't know where they're going because they're jumping all over the place. Um, so I, I know it's a side note, doesn't apply to all of you, but I do think that's important as far as the pace part. The thing that I think applies to all of us is this real consistent, like what we're looking for is this consistent thread based on his first point, which is a relationship will change you. And now he's going into his main point being Isaiah, but sort of kind of uh, holding that up as well with a few other examples that we find in scripture. So let's keep going. I don't deserve this. And then he sees God, and his face hits the dirt. And no longer does he say, if I could have a meeting with God, I would tell him that he is unfair. He resorts to saying, I'm not worthy to look at you. We see this again in Isaiah, which we will break down. And even Peter, John, and James, the apostles of Christ who spent years with God as Christ get taken up to the mountain 
and they see him transfigured into his glory, and this man that they spent years eating and talking and learning from, their faces hit the dirt. And all Peter can suggest is, maybe we could build some tents and just worship you up here. Because this is incredible and beyond what we have seen. I think we get into a weird spot when we imagine God. We tend to either devalue him or elevate ourselves so that we think God is, you know, I mean, bigger than us and stronger for sure. Uh, He's smarter than us. But if I had the wisdom of God, he would, I would make the same decisions. Or if God was in my position, he would make the same decisions. And this either takes God to something that is just a little bit better than a person, like a superhero, or it raises us up to something that is just a little below God as some kind of demigods. And neither of these is true. God is holy, which we will talk about here in a second, but when we look at at his throne room, his servants, who have been specially made just to attend to him, use two-thirds of their wings just to cover themselves from him. There's an unworthiness that happens when you encounter the holiness of God. And they are just screaming back and forth so loud that the foundations of the doorways are shaking. And all they shout is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. So what is holy? If you- All right, so he's going to get into holy here in a second as he's going kind of segued into breaking, going through and breaking down Isaiah. Um, so I, I want to pull out something here. I think that one, I think we're so used, most of us are so used to hearing sermons that maybe aren't um, incredibly deep that when we, we sort of expect surface level sort of sort of things. Now, what I want to pull out of here is what Matt does here is really intriguing in the sense that he, this sermon so far and the sermon that we looked at together, he did the same thing that I think is really helpful. And one of the things that I think as pastors and preachers uh, is one of the things that we need to take account for. One, he sort of snuck in this underlying thing that comes up when we read the text, right? And he brings it to the surface. He goes, so oftentimes as, as human beings, we either, uh, we either lower God down to almost to our level, or we raise ourselves up almost to his. And he kind of works through the reality of what's sort of in our heads when we read about and sort of try to understand who God is and what he looks like and how he operates. We, he says, we do one of those two things. That's not in the text there, but the wonderful part is he brings it out before he starts going through the text as a way to say, like, this is probably in the back of our mind and we don't even realize it. So he's really saying, like, before we approach this text, even though he's already covered the context and the background of Isaiah, kind of getting us into the what was Isaiah going through, what was Isaiah seeing part of uh, the text. So we've kind of gotten that background. 
then he kind of walks him and says, hey, these are really rare events. He mentions he mentions uh, Job and Moses. And then we get to the point where before, sort of as a segue almost, unnoticeable segue to get into the text, he says, and as we approach this text, we do one of these two things. Almost saying like, yeah, you've gotten the t- context. You understand kind of where this is coming from. But you still have a set of lenses on your eyes as you approach this text where either you're raising yourself up and you're bringing God down. That's not the case of what's happening. And then really brings out this very helpful part where he says, even the angels that are in his presence are using most of their wings to cover themselves, as he now is going to talk about God's holiness and kind of segueing into and working through the scripture a bit more in that direction, bringing out the reality of kind of what Isaiah is saying he's seeing within what's already still fresh in our minds is that sometimes we either raise ourselves up or bring God down. Clearly, though, that is not what's happening when Isaiah is here. Isaiah is in the presence of a holy God, understanding his unworthiness, and then Matt is going to keep working through the text here. So just like what I think as congregants we need to look for is this very well thought out engaging of our minds um, as we approach the text. Because it's one of those things that we now we have to think about, wow, do I have that lens on? Do I do that? Do I try to raise myself up? Do I try to bring God down a little bit? Um, and it was sort of this subtle thing. He didn't spend hardly any time on it at all. But now it's kind of there. And we're viewing the text now through that lens as we now look at the holiness of God. If you were to go to Google and type in holy definition, uh, which I did a couple days ago, you will see that it's related to religion. It will say, well, if you have holy ground, that is a religious-centered ground. If you have a holy sacrament, that is a sacrament dealing with religion. And the reason that holy just means religion now is because it comes from the Bible. But if you look at the spine of your Bible, if it's like mine, it will say the Holy Bible which obviously doesn't mean the religious Bible, right? We have a different word for it. So if we were to create a new word for holy today, it would be separate or different. When we say that we have a holy God, we don't mean we have a great God who's like us, but better. That's most other religions have something like that. We say we have a God so incomprehensible, so different from everything that we have ever seen, smelt, tasted, or heard, or thought of, that we cannot comprehend how great he is. God is not like the greatest thing in creation. He is the creator of creation. He is different from what he created the best thing that you can imagine is nothing compared to the man who gave you the ability to think of those things. So I want you to imagine this scene. One more thing, I guess. The holy, 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 the reason that they repeat it is that that is an amplifier on Jewish adjectives, the repetition of things. So today, when we write things, we put... Uh, emphases with italics, we bold, we underline, we add exclamation points. 
the Hebrew people just repeated themselves. So when you hear Jesus Christ say, truly, truly, I tell you, he's saying this is a truth beyond the truth that you're used to, that we have an addition on there. And when we have holy, 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 we have a thrice-repeated holiness. So if we were to put this into our terms more, it would say holy, holier, holiest is the Lord of armies. So I want you to imagine this scene, that you're Isaiah, and you're in the presence of God now. He is seated on this throne, and the entire temple, which was not a small building, it's where every sacrifice was made by every person in that kingdom. This whole temple is filled with his robes. There are creatures that are beyond our thought processes, we don't know exactly what they look like, but they have six wings, which is weird in itself. And these guys are flying around, shouting so loud in a room filled with smoke that the doorways are shaking, and they are just proclaiming the holiness and separateness of God. And if that image does not fill you with awe and wonder, I don't think you're imagining it well enough. When we first encounter God, we fear God's holiness, and we hate our sin. When you are in the presence of God, it is incredibly comforting if you are in a right relationship with Him. But if your imperfect self is confronted with the perfection of God, I cannot imagine anything more terrifying. So Isaiah's response is appropriate. Most of us would be afraid to approach Brad Pitt or Meryl Streep on the street. You're like, oof, they act well, and they're rich. I don't know what to say. Multiply that a thousand times on itself. When you have somebody who is so much greater than you are, and you are sitting in your sin, you will fear it. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I am ruined. <laughs> in the uh, older translations, it would say, I am undone, which is a phrase that I love, that he is just coming apart. And why is he proclaiming this woe? Because as he says, I am a man of unclean lips, he has said, I am a sinner. I live among a people of unclean lips. I come from a group of sinners. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you'll know that God says, any man who sees me will die. So Isaiah is sitting here thinking, I'm about to die. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Armies, and here. So real quick, there's a, there's a lot there, and I know I'm not stopping this a lot because there's not. Let's I'll be honest with you, there's not a lot of reason to stop this, but there are a few things that I want to pull out here. One, especially that last point, connecting back to the Old Testament, right? There's this real sense here, and this is one of the things that I've talked about before, that pastors should be teachers as well 
right? Um, in regards to walking the congregants through the text, sometimes what you have um, are pastors that either will kind of use the text as the jumping board off into their own points, and then they'll kind of expound on their own points based on some verse or a couple verses they read. And then other times you'll have pastors cover a pretty big amount of text, but then only teach through like a part of it, not not the whole thing. What we have here with Matt is he's going through the text, and again, kudos to him on the kind of the pace of it, right? Teaching through the text in a way that now the congregants that have very likely heard this before, I mean, it's not like this is a um, some obscure text that's never preached on, like they've likely heard this in their Christian life before. But he's bringing it to life using two things that probably haven't been presented before. One, all the context we got on Isaiah before, as well as that whole cognitive lens that he set up before saying, hey, you know, don't bring God down. Don't lift yourself up. Like, just approach this text as it is. Walking us through how Isaiah would have felt like, right, in this bringing in a text from Exodus that I that Isaiah would have been very likely aware of in regards to like not only is Isaiah standing in the presence of God terrified, but he he knows what that means, right? He he's aware that that he should any moment he's gonna he's gonna drop dead. So really, just bringing in the emotion of the moment as well as connecting with his audience cognitively, Matt's kind of bringing in all of the elements that I think are very helpful in a sermon. Sometimes you will have pastors that will only engage the mind. So you get a lot of information, but it's not very helpful practically in your heart. It, 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 it just it's, it's a lot of information. You could write you could take a quiz on it if you needed to and pass but it doesn't really affect you too much. Then there's other pastors that are very emotive, like you're very worked up, you're very excited, you're like, oh yeah, preach it, right? But they haven't engaged the mind, like nothing, no new information has changed. Nothing, you've not received any real teaching, you've just been very amped up. What I, what I see Matt doing here, which I think is incredibly helpful, especially for us as pastors, is to kind of, engage in that manner of both engaging the mind and bringing us emotionally into the moment as well. I think that affects us as congregants as well. If you're not a pastor and you're not preaching, but you're sitting there listening to it, there are certain times where you're like, that was a good sermon. Well, why was it a good sermon? If you think back, probably most of the time it's a good sermon is because one, your mind was engaged. Like you had to intellectually think about it and think through it. But simultaneously, your your heart was engaged. The emotions were brought up going, wow, this is good information. This is like that moment that in this case that, that he's describing is like, wow, Isaiah is in this moment. This is what's happening. This is what have went through his mind, right? And you're engaged in it both intellectually and emotionally. And I think that's incredibly important. All even if you're if you exclude sermon preaching or the Bible entirely, like all good storytelling, like good books, good movies do this in a way that engages us. That's what makes us want to read the book again or watch the movie again, right? 
what Matt's doing here is is basically that same thing, engaging our mind through scripture, through what God has said, as well as engaging our heart in a way that compels us to want to listen more, but also want, like, it, it wells up within us, or hopefully it does, this desire to, to read God's word more because of what we're seeing, like the truth brought out of the scripture here. So anyway, let's keep going. Here I am with unclean lips, coming from a people of unclean lips. And here's where we get the redemption. Because in our fear of God's holiness, we hate our sin. But then, verse 7, the seraphim touches his mouth with a hot coal and says, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So the second thing that happens after our encountering with God, while we fear God's holiness and we hate our sin, in our sin, God cleanses us. This is earth shattering. We do not live in a world where this happens. In our world, the imperfect stains the perfect. Nobody has ever seen a moldy strawberry and thought, I'll put it with the fresh ones because they'll cure it of its mold. Right? That's bad advice. The imperfect, the moldy one, ruins the good ones. We have a common phrase for this, that one bad apple ruins the batch or everyone. It depends on where you've heard it, I guess. I heard a couple different answers, but it's the same concept. Nobody has ever thought, my kid has chicken pox, I'll take him to his friend who's never had it, and the chicken pox will go away. Those chicken pox transfer to the other kid. Because in our world, perfection doesn't travel, imperfection does. And in Jewish culture, this was huge. There's a good part of the book of Leviticus that just deals with how do you take somebody who has a skin disease and deal with them? You had to kick him out of the town for a little bit, right? Let him try to heal on his own. People with leprosy walked around with rags so that you could identify them from a distance. And in case they were coming from behind you, they were ordered as walking to yell, unclean, unclean, because you didn't even want to touch their robes. Until the book of Matthew, when Jesus Christ takes his skin and touches the skin of a leper, and instead of contracting leprosy himself, he heals him. Our imperfection spreads, but God's perfection will spread. So this is why in our sin, God cleanses us. The other thing I want you to notice is that Isaiah did not... We won't expand on that point that he just made, but that was a really good point. So, I, again, there, there's not a lot to go in there, but I think one of the things you're looking for are these patterns um, within, maybe not patterns within Scripture. That sounds like maybe, maybe that's not phrased right. But what he's bringing out here is a reality, again, and sort of this, this underlying thing like he did with the lenses before we got into Isaiah, is that we often lower God or raise ourselves, and he brings in this same sort of underlying assumption that we deal with. This is what we see in Isaiah with the coal on his lips, 
it's not something that we're used to. And then he goes into those examples, which I think is helpful. Like, I forget where I, I recently heard a sermon that was similar to that, that Jesus is the one that when it, whenever he engaged the sick, I mean, the leopard is one example, but most of the, the, the illnesses that he engaged with, people would not engage with those people because they were so apt to, to get to, for those to transfer. Um, I wish I could remember what sermon that was. But anyway, the same point was made, and I think it's a very powerful point in regards to what he's saying here within, again, giving us the correct lenses to view this text. Nothing. He doesn't justify himself. The scripture doesn't say, woe is me, I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, but it's because Billy instigated me. <laughs> he doesn't try to say that. He just says, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm going to die because of it. He also does not try to do works. Isaiah doesn't say, give me the coal, let me touch my lips. He realizes in this moment that there is nothing that he can do to make himself right with God. All he does is despair and accept God's cleansing which is the way that it works with us. When you understand who God is and who you are, you will be crushed by the weight of your sin. And in that sin, with your repentance, God will cleanse you. And he does that for number three, so that we can experience enough holiness to do God's will. When Isaiah gets his lips cleansed, he then hears the voice of God. Keep in mind that he does not get his lips cleansed and then go to a land of unclean lips with a sense of superiority. He doesn't walk around his friends going, clean lips now. I understand how you used to live. I also was like that. Clean lips, I'm good. Even worse, what he doesn't do, thank goodness, is walk around and say, eh, God cleansed my lips, I'm good, I can continue to live the way that I did. God doesn't cleanse his lips just to send him among his people and do nothing. He cleanses his lips so that with those new lips, he can prophesy to the nations. So when we read verse 8, and we see... Isaiah say, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. That is a crazy turnaround. For me, it is the flip of a page. Uh, for most of you, it is probably on the same page or at least within a half scroll. That he has been despairing mourning his own impending death from merely seeing God. And now, after the cleansing, he is responding verbally in dialogue with God. He now hears God's call and doesn't shrink away, but says, here I am, send me. And that's the reason that we get cleansed, so that we can do God's will not so that we can do our will guilt-free. This threefold path happens to all of us. 
at some point or another. The okay, so he's going to get into that, but I, I want to cover what he said real quick. So, again, there is this thread going through Matt's sermon as far as starting with the, the phrase that is very common that a lot of people have heard, which is it's not a religious relationship. Then he addresses at the very beginning of the sermon that oftentimes that oftentimes when said, that is said in a way that it will, you know, I don't have to change. Matt does a great job of transitioning into showing that relationships change people. More specifically, a relationship with God changes people, uses Isaiah to show this transition in a really big way while using Job and Moses to sort of show like this, that it's present elsewhere. It walks through the text, really, uh, really, kind of presses on the holiness of God, what that means, and not only what that means, but what that means when we realize the holiness of God, walks us through that, gets us to the atonement part where uh, the angel touches the coal to Isaiah's lips. And then this this sending, like what does that mean then? Well, it doesn't mean, and then he goes through a few points there, uh, it doesn't mean that you just get to do whatever you want or you're just, you're good. It's that you're sent out as a changed individual into your world, not with a superiority complex, but going out to proclaim the, Lord, the word of the Lord. And he, he applies this text in such a way that it's it's really this compelling um, sort of weight on the believer saying, okay, well, if you are in a relationship with Christ, you should have been changed, and this change should bring up this this compelling nature in you of not only a changed nature, but a desire to go out. So um, we, we have about 15 minutes or so left. Let's kind of see where Matt goes with this and how he ends it, because he's pretty close to the end of the sermon here as well. There are a lot of people who have not hit step one. They don't fear God. They don't hate their sin. And that is why we evangelize. Because we know that at some point, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We also know that if that happens after death, there's no more room for cleansing. We evangelize so that people have the opportunity to do what we have done, which is to be cleansed. So many people get stuck on that first rung, though. There is a very common phrase going around right now of church hurt, where people explain the problems and the emotional distress and trauma that they have engaged in church with. And to be fair, a lot of that is because of really bad leadership. But so many of the stories that I've heard end with people who say that they lived their life in fear of hell and judgment. That everything they did felt like it was taking them farther from God and closer to punishment. This is what happens when you get to the point of fearing God's holiness, hating your sin, but you don't accept the cleansing of Jesus Christ. You don't understand that his taking on every sin of the world includes the worst ones you have ever done. We get to this spot where we think, I can't be in relationship with God. I'm different somehow. A lot of people get stuck on number two, where we say, 
I have cleansed myself. I've cleansed myself. Sorry, that was a terrible faux pas. God has cleansed me. And therefore, I am good to relax. I hated my sin. I feared God's holiness. I'm cleansed. I'm a- Real quick, stop here. The only thing I would add to point one, because his point one, I think, was really, really good in the sense that there are a lot of people. I, I know I've had many conversations with people that have dealt with church hurt um, or have come to... Um, the point that he mentioned, I think the way he kind of worded that and worked that out was really good in the sense that he talks about how, I mean, they lived in fear of everything they did was going to lead them to hell. Um, and so they, they're just in constant fear of that, of that hating their sin. The only thing that I would add to point one, I think if I was going to, if it was me and Matt sitting down again, would be that I, there's, I think there's another part of that. And again, maybe that's just conversations you know, that haven't happened. So that you're not aware of maybe this other section, but there, there, it seems like there's this twofoldness that I hear at least. And if I, if I was going to kind of preach on this point, I, I would definitely, and I hope I would word it in such a way as Matt did, that I think was very well put that, you know, there are people that get to a point that they realize that they have sin and they, they know that what they're doing, they feel like they're, they're constantly like hell is just looming over them. Oftentimes, though, what I've noticed is that that doesn't lead us into repentance. What that does is it leads people into this idea that, well, God couldn't be sending me to hell because he made me this way, completely ignoring Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if he made me this way, this thing that I feel so guilty for, that I feel like hell is looming over me because... It can't be from God because God accepts me the way I am. And then I can just live now uh, with that, with the peace of, you know, hell not looming over me because surely God wouldn't condemn me for this. So some people do live like they do have this fear of God and the fear of his holiness and the, the, the really the weight of their sin on them. And sometimes that drives people to repentance. Um, uh, which is point number two, but sometimes people in their head feel like they can maybe either cleanse themselves or God just accepts them that way. Um, and then they, they go away. They, they don't, they no longer feel, I think that's the point where like in Romans one, right, where God just gives them over to a, to a debased mind because they, they, they don't, they, they come to a point where they don't fear their sin anymore. They don't know that God's holiness is there. Um, so that would be the only thing I'd add to point one. Now, point two, I think is really good that he's saying like some of some people, uh, and I know many, many, I was there for a long time. Many, many believers will get to the point where in our sin, God cleanses us. And we just kind of sit there because we're like, oh yeah, we're great. We're good. Nothing happens. Like we're, we're safe. I'm going to take a breather. <laughs> it's just not the reason that that happens. We have to be moving towards experiencing enough holiness to do God's will. And I am not going to be up here to say that when you hit number three, you will be in full-time ministry or that you will go to a mission field. But I am going to tell you that when you hit number three, you're going to talk to your neighbor. You're going to grow in your relationship with God. That you will begin living your life of holiness and repentance. I'm here just to urge you today to do some introspection, 
and figure out where on this path you are. To talk to somebody today, to make a new friend in this church, to come along and, and to move down that path. If you don't believe, find somebody who does. Ask them to introduce you to the God that we know and serve. Ask them about our great joy and peace that we get in knowing that Christ has come down and lived the life that we couldn't live. A perfect life that required no judgment and then chose to take our judgment onto himself so that we too can be cleansed. Get somebody to know how holy our God is so that they can understand who he is and how you fit into that. If you are walking around constantly worried about judgment, thinking that everything you think, say, or do is taking you farther away, accept God's cleansing. And talk to somebody about how together we can find that joy and peace in Christ. And if you've accepted Christ, live for him. Help others learn who he is. Grow your own walk in him. Respond to his call with, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Okay, so that, first of all, I, I think I deserve a reward. That's two weeks in a row that we got through a full sermon. So <laughs> just say, I need, I need a, a plaque or a medal or some, some sort of trophy. I don't know. But anyway, um, so let's end with this. Let's kind of wrap it up this way. One, I would just like to know overall, there's a lot of sermon reviews that are on this channel. And if, if, you, if this is your first one, you can go back. There's a whole playlist. You can watch through them or you can listen to the podcast. We have an audio-only version if you want to search for uh, Honest Youth Pastor on, on whatever podcasting platform, all the audio is there. But the point is, if you've listened to a lot of these sermon reviews, what you're going to note is that there's, there's a lot of, I mean, so many sermons out there or t types of pastors that preach in such a way that it can get very disappointing. Like you can, you can listen to a sermon and you go, man... Like that was nothing. That was fluff. That was, they, they misused the scripture. They, I mean, you can get very down about it, right? One of the things that I really appreciate um, with, with people that either, a lot of people that send me the sermons or the people I get to sit down and do like walk through their sermons with them and do sermon reviews like with them one-on-one. -on -one, what I really like about that is that what I find is, especially in Matt, I think is one of them, and Matt is a humble dude as far as I've talked to him. Like, he wouldn't be like, oh, thanks. It, like, listening to Matt, like, gives me encouragement that, like, look, there, there, are, there are thousands of, of pastors out there preaching the gospel, using the scriptures well, uh, like, being faithful to their calling. There's so many out there. And I think sometimes they can get buried under the noise of all the pastors that are doing a terrible job at it. And we go, we just, oh no, you know, the state of the church is terrible. And we forget about the faithful 
pastors, the thousands and thousands of them, not only in America, but around the world that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is accessible, that engages the mind and the heart, and that, that God is really using to, to, to further his kingdom. And this is a, a great example of that. Now, with that being said, Let's kind of break it down real quick as we end this review. One, um, I think what Matt does here, this this was, I mean, copy-paste what I saw in the sermon that we sat down and listened to as far as how well it was put together, right? We start with a, uh, a main point. We use that main point that then goes through and acts as sort of the anchor or the string through the entire sermon. Everything keeps getting drawn back to the reality that if you are in a relationship with someone, it changes you. He uses uh, his text as that primary example of Isaiah being totally transformed with his encounter with God and uses that sort of as subtext that if we if we are in relationship with God, if we have encountered the holy living God, um, then we are changed as well and walks us through with his three main points in a way that really sort of builds on top of that in a way that makes us have to engage in a very... Uh, sort of addressing our own life circumstances about where we are in that, right? Are we at a point where we fear God and hate our sin? Are we at a point where we understand we've been atoned for and that that sin is gone and we're actually not in fear of it, but in praise of who God is? Or are we at a point where we're we're actually like, we, we want to go out and tell others about who he is? And I think that that was a great way to build those questions on top of an overall sermon that was just really solid in and of itself. So that being said, I would highly encourage you, um, I'll leave a link in the description below of the sermon that me and Matt actually walked through together because it's equally as good. I think you're going to really benefit from that if you watch that, or you can watch this whole sermon without my commentary. Link will also be in the description below. I'll try to distinguish those two for you so you can watch them. Also, guys, if you appreciate what we do here as far as the sermon reviews, the content we put out, uh, there's a couple ways you can support us. One, if you haven't subscribed, make sure you, uh, what's the word that the kids use? Smash that like button uh, to subscribe. Uh, turn on that bell for the notification so you'll know whenever we put these out. Every Saturday at 11, they go live. Or if you want them early and another way you can support what we do here is that you can become a patron on Patreon. And uh, the patrons actually get this Wednesday morning. So they get them a full three days before they go live. And you can see those there as well. So guys, thank you for watching, listening, doing all the cool things that you do. I'll talk to you next week.